Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. On June 2nd, news leaked out that Bernardo had been quietly transferred three days earlier to the medium security La Macaza uh, institution about 190 kilometers northwest of Montreal. He was initially an inmate at the Kingston Penitentiary in Ontario and spent about a decade at the Millhaven Institute, a maximum security prison just outside Kingston. The day, listen to this. The day of Bernardo's transfer got out, Mendocino posted a statement on Twitter describing the correctional service's, quote, independent decision, end quote, as, quote, shocking and incomprehensible, end quote, he also said he planned to raise, quote, the transfer decision process, end quote, with Ann Kelly, the commissioner of the Correctional Service Canada, and expected the Correctional Service to take, quote, a victim-centered and trauma-informed informed approach, end quote, in such cases. So, two weeks later, the Correctional Service revealed it had first told Mendocino's office about the possibility of a transfer in early March. Early March. And then again in late May, after a date for the move had been set, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau was briefed on May 29, the day the transfer took place, while Mendicino has said he found out the next day. All right. Somebody's nose is growing larger and larger in Ottawa. Tim Danson is, uh, well, I've known Tim for 35 years. He's a great lawyer. He's an amazing human being. He represents victims' families. He's represented the French and Mahaffey families for 30 years. I'll say it for him. He's never asked for, requested, or billed a dime to the French and Mahaffey families for his legal services. He did the same, well, there was an issue with the Stevenson family inquest. This goes back to the 90s. Christopher was 12 years of age when he was allowed uh, to be abducted by a homicidal pedophile allowed because they let this homicidal pedophile out. And uh, he abducted Christopher, kept him for two days, murdered him. And his parole officer, or at least the supervising officer, was supposed to watch him. During the inquiry, uh, admitted he had no idea what a sociopath was. So the government had said at the time, and I've told you this before, the government said that, uh, oh, government lawyers can represent uh, the Stevenson family and the government, so we're not going not to fund any of the legal expenses for the Stevenson family. The minister came into the studio, Doug Lewis, and took a beating from, not physically, but certainly verbally, from my listeners and me, and changed his mind the next day. Tim Danson, uh, you are, and I mean this sincerely, you are a Canadian hero for what you do. How are you doing on this Sunday in July? Well, I'm up at my cottage, and I'm looking forward to speaking to you, as I always do, and uh, thank you very much for your kindness. Well, you earn everything, Tim, and I mean that in the old-fashioned way. You work for it, 
and you represent the people who need you. So here we have, we essentially have the Commissioner of Correctional Service Canada saying to the Federal Public Safety Minister, hold on a second. Hold on a second. Don't be blaming us when we told you exactly what was going to be happening. How do you interpret what's been going on as far as this is concerned? I, I, you know, it, it's breathtaking, quite frankly. And then we actually learned uh, some additional information last week that the uh, Commissioner uh, of Corrections Canada had also um, communicated uh, directly with the Deputy Minister and the, and the Deputy Associate Minister. Uh, uh, and they responded uh, and thanked the commissioner for the uh, passing on the information. And, and apparently even that information didn't uh, reach the, uh, the minister. So, I mean, this, 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 this absence of communication is, is deeply, deeply disturbing. Um, I, I like to think that the government is run by the government, and not the civil service. Um, I mean, clearly they play a very important role. But the buck stops with the elected officials. And uh, so this is, you know, you know, very disturbing. But at the end of the day, uh, from the perspective of the families, um, they want to see action. Because the one thing that we can't accept is that when you have the, the minister in charge and you have the prime minister of the country both saying that this decision to transfer Paul Bernardo uh, which was shocking and 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 and, and not defendable. Um, different adjectives have been used uh, depending on what uh, news conference you listen to, but they themselves have, have have expressed a strong view, and we know the leader of the opposition shares the view uh, that this is an incomprehensible decision. So, if our elected officials unanimously are saying this is unacceptable, then um, let's do something about it. Talk is cheap. I know we're waiting for an outcome of an internal uh, uh, review. Um, I don't have much confidence in that review unless uh, the politicians who are elected uh, directly by the people of Canada uh, direct the commissioner uh, to reverse this decision. And if at the end of the day they say, and I don't accept this, but if they do say that the law uh, does not allow for any other uh, remedy, uh, then change the law when you have unanimity among parliament itself. Um, but this is not an acceptable explanation. And, and, and Roy, you and I have talked about this, not just in the context of Bernardo, but in, in, in the context of, 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 of many different offenders who have committed uh, heinous acts against innocent children and women, that, um, that we, you know, we, 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 when they talk about privacy rights, um, oh, yeah. the government has an obligation to, to, to explain to the people what they're doing, and they're not, because they're, re- they're hiding behind the privacy rights of murderers, which is really breathtaking. Well, it is. And, and you know, I mean, I read you uh, on, on the air, Tim, the email that I sent to Correctional Service Canada wanting specifically to know whether Bernardo had been engaged in conjugal visits while in, uh, in, in uh, Millhaven uh, Prison. And they twisted themselves into verbal knots. Trying not to answer the question. But as we read the responses, I read it to you. It was clear from their discomfort in writing the words they, 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 they patched together that, yeah, Bernardo has been engaged in, uh, in, in conjugal visits. And they hide behind the privacy. And this time they hid behind the privacy rights of the person visiting Bernardo. So to me, it's like, well, you're admitting it. Come on. Just say it. Just tell the truth for crying out loud. 
I, I mean, I don't understand that uh, this is a public institution, our corrections parole system. It's funded by the taxpayers of Canada. And your listeners and all Canadians have a right to know the basis upon which these decisions are made. How else can the public determine whether their tax dollars are being properly spent? How does the public evaluate uh, the efficacy of, of these important public institutions if everything is done in private? And this has to end. This, 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 this is a pretext when they talk about privacy. We have a right to know. Canadians have a constitutional right to know uh, how their public institutions and how their tax dollars are being spent. Yeah. And it is, it's unusual, isn't it? When you look at the bureaucracy of Correctional Service Canada, and you have the commissioner, Ann Kelly, who has a very nice job, gets a really nice salary, will have a great pension when she walks away. It's unusual for a commissioner of a highly profiled national institution like Correctional Service Canada to react to what the minister is saying and the prime minister's saying, wait a minute, you're not unloading this on me. Yeah, uh, I mean, I think that this is this is part of the uh, c- communication lacuna that is a deeply concerning. But I still raise the question, which I've raised with you before, Roy, which is, yes, she's communicated with the minister's staff. She's communicated with the prime minister's staff, the privy council's staff, and the and the and the and and the bureaucracy and the civil service. Why isn't she? Why didn't she ever pick up the telephone and speak directly? Uh, with the minister, and the other thing that uh, that you raised, uh, uh, Roy, last time we talked, which is the fact that they're, the, the the commissioner and the minister meet biweekly for months and months and months. Uh, you know, when this decision was made, how is it possible that these two people could be meeting face to face, and it's not being this isn't being discussed openly? The most uh, you know vile and notorious criminal. Uh, in in Canadian history, probably yeah. uh, that that requires answers, and we're not getting them. They must have been talking about the truckers uh, in Ottawa. That's probably what they were talking about. <laughs> it's disturbing. It's disturbing. But it I, really I, I, I is. I think, I think you know what, Tim. It's not a stretch to call you on behalf of the families. Let's just call Mr. Danson. Let's call Tim Danson and say to him, "Look, this is what's in the offing." We want you to at least be aware and want you to be able to I, – I really believe that you, you should have been able to engage on behalf of the families. And we know what their response would have been. No, because you want them back in maximum security, which is where he belongs. Uh, so so the, they choose the path, always the path of least resistance. Yeah, well, they, they certainly made sure that, that uh, I didn't know about it until after the transfer right. was done, right. the day of the transfer. Uh, so that's uh, that's disturbing. But even when they did reach me um, on, you know, just after the the transfer had been completed, uh, they still refused to answer any of my questions. The most basic one, which was why, on what basis, what's your criteria, what are the principles and values that guide your judgment? They said we can't tell you because of Paul Bernardo's privacy rights. Uh, this this is this is so deeply offensive. And as I've said, we do have a case in the federal court, different, slightly different fact situations. Uh, hopefully we'll get some guidance from the federal court, but this is going up to the Supreme Court of Canada for sure, uh, because this is a very important issue that Canadians have a right to be resolved in their favor. Tim, are you, uh, are you anticipating any additional surprises leading to the uh, parole hearing in November? Well, I have some concerns. I'm not sure if, if we'll be surprised or not, but 
Um, you know, it, 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 when you start seeing a, an offender like Bernardo transferred from maximum security to medium security, uh, one would think that the case management team uh, may be presenting a more um, positive uh, uh, presentation to the parole board to the benefit of, of Paul Bernardo. Uh, you know, we, we don't know. Uh, I mean, certainly a question that I'm going to have is that at our last parole hearing in 2021, the parole board noted properly that um, that there had been no progress with 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 Paul Bernardo in the essentials, which is he still exhibited no uh, remorse. Uh, he still had no insight, no empathy. So I'd like to know what happened in the last two years that uh, that that triggered this this uh, this transfer. But um, but we have never uh, taken these parole hearings uh, for granted. And we will be vigilant and we will present uh, the best case possible uh, before the parole board, which we do through the uh, victim impact statements, which uh, in the past have been read by um, Donna French and Debbie Mahaffey. And they are very, very powerful um, presentations. And uh, we will do it again in November. So horrific that the families have to go through this and, and confront Bernardo in a parole hearing. What's it like inside a parole hearing? What are the, what, what's the room like? Who sits where and, and what takes place? Well, it happens at the penitentiary in which the offender is situated. And it's a small room. Uh, the parole board members, there's two of them, they sit at a table at the front of the room. Uh, there's another table where Paul Bernardo sits uh, and, and sometimes with his own counsel. Um, and then we are the 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 the, uh, the victims and myself uh, are are sitting uh, right behind Bernardo, um, uh, so that there isn't a face to face between when the families are reading their statements. Um, but generally, I'm actually to the side of, of Bernardo, and the proximity is very very close. We're just a couple of feet away uh, from him. And that's you know pretty traumatic, uh, uh, very traumatic for the families. But that's those are the circumstances. And then they stand up and they will read their statements. The parole board will engage in uh, uh, in a detailed examination of Bernardo. Bernardo has you know not only does he respond, but obviously has a right to speak. Last time I believe he had a, a forty minute presentation, which was Exhibit A, very very disturbing. And, and uh, you know, and what we've been asking the, the court that we're waiting for a decision on is that uh, the audio recordings of those parole hearings should be released so the public can hear and evaluate uh, for themselves, because um, it's not just what Bernardo says, uh, but it's how he says it, his demeanor, uh, his tone of voice. Uh, he speaks about these offenses like normal people would talk about the weather, and it is bone chilling. And and I and and it, it's it's quite limited. In the case of Bernardo, uh, the media was in a different room, much bigger room, uh, and they were zoomed in so they could they could view it. Uh, but the room itself is quite small. And um, as I say, I think that the public has a right to listen to the audio re- recordings themselves. It's a public hearing. The public shouldn't be excluded because of the size and circumstances. Um, and I think they would have a very different view of our corrections parole system. Uh, and I think our corrections parole system would be would be held much more accountable 
if they knew that the public at large was able to uh, listen to what's going on in these hearings, like they uh, could in a normal court of law. We might not have these confusing, he said, I sent an email, I sent a text, I talked to you, but you didn't hear me, exchanges. So, Bernardo, in the few seconds we have left, he can easily turn around, just turn sideways, look at you, or he could turn around and look at the French and Mahaffey families. Uh, you know, absolutely. And uh, uh, he, he's, he's told not to do that. Although, because I'm often in, over to the side, um, he and I have made con eye, eye contact, and uh, and that is um, you know chilling, but nothing compared to you know what's burned into my mind, yeah. which is the video tapes yeah. itself. So there was an op-ed that was written by my guest, Robin Gay, Vice President and Deputy Leader of Government Relations, at the Canadian Chamber of Commerce, and I read it and I thought, bang, this is bang on, bang on. And the title of it was, Western Canada has the goods the world needs, but Canada needs to act now to show that it can deliver. In a way, it's sad that we have to do this. It is sad. It should be self-evident to everyone, including Mr. Gilbo, that agricultural and energy requirements exist internationally and that we should build, what is it, Vilnius? Okay, I don't know. I'm <laughs> just looking at an email coming in. Um, it should be evident to the environment minister that agriculture and energy, the world needs it. We have it. We ethically produce these, these needs. Stop interfering with agriculture. Stop messing with the energy in, in industry and cooperate. But I don't know. Maybe he's looking at scaling the CN Tower again. I'm not sure. What's going on with Mr. Gilbo? He won't come on the show. Neither will his boss. Robin Guy, how are you, Robin? Very well, thanks. How are you doing today? I'm great. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, my pleasure. It should be self-evident, shouldn't it, that uh, what Canada's West can contribute to domestically to the well-being of Canadians and contribute to the world, our allies and the world's needs as far as food, agriculture and energy needs are concerned. We, we have it. We, we should be making it available. We have to have the, the, the production and the transportation has to be right there. should be self-evident. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and I'll say from, from an economic standpoint as well, I mean, our, our outlook right now for, for, for growth is, is low. And I think when, when we talk to our members, um, we see from, 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 from a Western Canadian standpoint, um, there's an ability for, 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 for Western Canadian businesses to, to, to provide a path, grow the economy. And I think you mentioned, you know, it's again, it's, it's food, fuel, fertilizer. Um, we just we just need to we need to figure it out. We need to uh, to start paying attention to 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 these files and uh, and like you said, we're we're an ethically based society. Um, it's very attractive uh, to 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 many, uh, but but if we can't uh, if we can't step up and we can't deliver, then uh, we're we're going to be in trouble. Yeah, and the world will suffer, and we will suffer unnecessarily. Let me quote from your op-ed: "With the global need for energy." Critical minerals, food and fertilizers becoming more urgent, Canada both faces a moral responsibility to its allies and an incredible domestic economic opportunity, our greatest obstacle, our unwillingness or ability to get things done. As part of a plan to grow the economy and fill this growing global demand, the government needs to focus on measures that enable Western Canadian businesses to scale and access economies looking for safe and secure natural resources the West can provide. Please expand on that. I, I know the, 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 the markets and the economies looking for what Western Canada can provide, 
they're not in short supply. No, I think it's, 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 we've got the fundamentals in place. It's, it's, it's just being able to, to again, it's, it's, it's looking at how we can, we can expand. So from, from an energy side, you know, Western Canada can, can meet the growing global demand, uh, and, and we do it in a, in a responsible and, and, and sustainably uh, manner. Um, you know, we just we really need to get out of our own way to promote our, this responsible extraction, um, but, but also then build on the value-added processing and, and the end manufacturing here in Canada. Um, from an ag side, I mean, again, you know, we're the world is growing, and and and, and that means that we, we we need to produce more food in order to, uh, to to feed this growing population, and that's both here in Canada, but but also uh, also abroad. So it's it's investing in um, and, and treating the agriculture sector, I think, just like any other economic sector. And and, and unfortunately, I'm, I'm not sure we're at that point right now. Yeah, this is a line that really resonated with me in your op-ed. In the next 40 years, experts predict the world will need to produce the equivalent of all the food produced in the last 10,000 years. Boy, if that point doesn't drive it home, if that statement doesn't drive it home, then I don't know what will. Well, and, and, and absolutely. And I mean, in, in, in terms of, I mean, it's, it's, the, it's the strengthening investment in the agriculture to ensure that we're able to do that. Um, but but it's also you know incentivizing the industry and, and, and the innovation in the industry. I think there's some some really good uh, examples that, uh, that that Canadian companies uh, here here in Western Canada are are, are looking at. Um, and, and and take for example, I think there's uh, there's a project between uh, Federated Co-op and, and, and AGT Foods in uh, in Saskatchewan, and, and, and it's looking at really again how how to make uh, the most uh, use out of out of what uh, what's available, and uh, not just uh, you know it's, it's it's taking the the protein from uh, from 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 a crop, and uh, and and then but also taking the the oil and, and being able to use it for sustainable uh, sustainable fuel. So. Um, we have a lot of innovation in the country, but uh, it's, it's, it's just sometimes it's, it's not easy to scale, and, and, and uh, we need the investment to ensure that these businesses are able to, to continue to, to, to invest in these types of projects, uh, as opposed to, say, looking down at the states where, where you've got some uh, programs with the, with the IRA uh, down there that's, uh, that's trying to, to attract uh, new, new business uh, away from Canada. Okay, so let's shift our attention and focus to the strike, and particularly Port of Vancouver. Approximately, looking at at your letter from the Chamber to the Prime Minister, approximately 25% of our total traded goods flow through the ports in Western Canada. They're Canada's largest gateway, handling over $800 million worth of cargo. How much trouble will a continued closure of the Vancouver port alone cause the Canadian economy, the Canadian taxpayer, Canadian business? Well, you, you take a look. I mean, it's twenty, roughly speaking, 25% of, of, of our total trade flows through through our West Coast ports. About eight hundred million dollars a day that, uh, that that our West Coast ports do, and right now that's uh, that's not happening. Um, we're 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 in uh, the second second week of uh, of, of this strike, uh, and and the damage is, is is starting to compound. I think you're going to start to see workers be laid off as as and businesses possibly even close because they can't import supplies or or, or export their products right now. So we need really the politicians in Ottawa to, uh, I guess they're not in Ottawa right now, but uh, we need them to, to, to really be paying attention to this. We have asked them to, uh, to, to come back uh, and because, again, we just we need goods flowing through, 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 uh, through our ports. We're, we're a trade-dependent country, uh, and, and again, we talk about uh, our growth being, uh, being stagnant. Uh, this, is, this is definitely not helping. 
Yeah, well, I'll do that for a couple of seconds, but I know you said that the letter, like the letter says, we're calling on the government to reconvene parliament and pass back-to-work legislation immediately. This is this is reverberating throughout the Canadian economy. Let me ask you one more question. If we have another week, let's say we have three weeks of the port closure at $800 million a day, and over 100 companies signed this uh, this letter to the to the prime minister, how long will it take to recover from the damage created? Well, they they say it's about uh, it's about uh, a week for every day that they're on strike to to catch up. So, for example, it's not just ports that uh, that that aren't moving. Um, yes, they're the ones on strike, but uh, but right now our, our rail goes to to these ports. They have to um, you know they're unloading cargo that is just going to sit there. Same thing with, uh, with 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 cargo that is is waiting to come into Canada. And right now, we're seeing. Um, Businesses have to have to plan for 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 this. I mean, yeah, like I said, we're we're over a week, yes, but uh, but this is something that uh, the businesses have been looking at for 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 a long time because they need stability within within their supply chain. Yeah. So, for example, on the on the produce side, I think that that's uh, that's a super interesting one, and we had a conversation with uh, with them today that uh, right now they've they've got goods that are sitting in port uh, that are in essence uh, rotting, uh, just sitting on sitting on a dock. Well, They're having to go terrible. to a different port. Uh, to 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 solve to 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 get this up, uh, and we're seeing that there's a backlog in the U.S. and they're having to come through Mexico now. Yeah, that's terrible. People are going hungry in this country every day. Uh, Robin, one more question for you. Any uh, quick yes or no? Uh, have you had a, a response from the prime minister? No. That tells. We've been we've been we've been we've been working with 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 government on on this one. Um, you know, I, I think it's it's something to. Uh, you know, we obviously want uh, want want this solved very quickly, and uh, and, and, and are trying to to offer those some positive. We have a uh, spread of ticks in Canada. It's been written about and talked about. And why are they here? And how many are there? And where are they? And what are the different types? And what can they cause? If you don't address the issue, our good friend Jason Tetro, microbiologist, the germ guy. Super awesome science show podcast host uh, joins us on the Roy Green Show. I always, uh, always really enjoy talking to Jason. He was uh, part of a national Lyme disease research group. Yeah, Lyme disease is one of the things that the ticks pass along. So uh, one of Jason's books is The Germ Code. We're going to talk about germs a little bit more in a different context on this segment. And carry a, uh, Pick up where we left off last time with Jason, and that is how bacteria are starting to sneer at antibiotics and what that may uh, portend for us. Is that, a, is that a good word, Jason, portend? Is it a real word? Did I just make it up? Well, we, you can say portend, you can say confer, and that's what we prefer to say. So, oh. um, yes, so we're seeing more antibiotic resistance, yeah. uh, especially the genes and wastewaters, and that's conferring a greater risk for antibiotic resistance yeah. infections. I want to talk to you about that in a bit, but let's talk about this issue with, uh, with, with ticks. Uh, yeah. There's being said that climate change is causing it because um, they're surviving longer in the climate we have. Uh, I'm not sure anybody's really serious, or not, not serious, but uh, really can, uh, can nail it to the wall. But yeah. what's going on? Well, it comes down to two things. Um, the first is that we are seeing more um, species of wildlife harboring the ticks. 
and that's spreading it around. And more recently, we've been seeing it in the raccoons, which is why now, rather than having to go out into the woods or, you know, um, and, and, and actually, you know, become part of the wild grasses there, you may actually encounter a tick in your backyard. Because essentially we now have um, sort of urban wildlife that are having more ticks on them. Uh, and then the second thing is that when the ticks are going to winter, they have to go into the ground and under leaves and everything like that. Now, if you get down to that minus 30 level and it stays there for like the 10 days, like we used to have way back in the day, and we would all complain about it. <laughs> you remember those days? Oh, I do. Yeah, I remember. Let's, I, like, let me just tell you this. When I lived in Quebec not so long ago, we had 30 consecutive days where it hit minus 30. All the ticks died. Yeah, I know. <laughs> that, that's what we need. <laughs> that, was right? the only, that was the only saving grace of that lousy month. Oh, I, and, and, and the thing is, is, you know, the more that we complain about the fact that we've got this very, very low temperature happening for a, a minimum of 10 days or longer, we should be actually saying this is good because we'll probably have a very weaker tick season coming up yeah. because that's what, basically what we need. So the more that we have, you know, less complaining cold days, the more likely it is that we're going to have more complaining hot days in the summer <laughs> where we have right. to worry about the ticks. Now, uh, you can call it whatever the heck you want, climate change, global warming, whatever it is, it doesn't matter. If, if you're not complaining in the wintertime, then you're going to be complaining in the summer. Simple mm -hmm. as that. Yeah. So why do we have to be concerned about ticks? And tell us, look, there are people who have no idea what a tick looks like. Yeah, so essentially um, a, a tick looks like a little sort of oval round thing with legs attached to it. And usually the front two legs um, are much longer and wider. Um, when you see them walking, it's, it's fairly easy to tell that they're a tick. And, and I mean, if you can always just Google image search. I'll show you what the different ticks look like. Um, but the reason that they're a problem is the same kind of reason that mosquitoes have become a problem. And that is they tend to carry bacteria, viruses, and um, uh, protozoa pathogens that could potentially leave us sick. Now, at the very top, you mentioned Lyme disease. That's right. one of them. But there are a few others that are in ticks that are growing in prevalence across the country um, with names like anaplasma, um, babesia, and Powassan virus. Now that last one, by the way, anyone who knows the Thunder Bay area knows Powassan because of a little town outside of there. That's where this virus was first detected. And um, well, quite honestly, you just don't want that virus because it basically has a very low survival rate. So oh. this, yeah, it, 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 it's one of those, um, what we call flaviviruses. Um, and while some of them like West Nile virus uh, and Zika virus, you can survive when it comes to Powassan virus. If it gets into your nervous system and gets up into your brain, it, it's not very good at all. So this is one of the reasons why we just simply don't want people to get bit. Yeah. And, and you know, sometimes when you get by, bit by something that's little, because you mentioned mosquitoes, right? A mosquito, oh, yeah. you get upset. You see, the little bugger got some blood out of me, right? And then you wipe yeah. the blood off. But ticks are not like mosquitoes. And if they get their back to the, the bacteria into your, into your system, like Lyme disease, if you don't treat it very quickly, you're looking at the potential for some very serious health issues that are going to trail you for quite a long period of time. Could kill you. Oh, no, it's absolutely true. And, and the thing is, right? Right, that when a tick gets inside of you, it's not going to be transferring over the bacteria right away. It's about 24 to 36 hours that it happens, which is why when you do a tick check, if you do see a tick, well, you 
you know, essentially put it into a, a Ziploc bag and send that to your public health authority. If you see it inside of you, then you've got to use these very small tweezers and get it from the head and pull it out. Because if you don't, then the head sticks inside your body and then you've got to go to the emergency room or go see a doctor to have it removed. After those 36 hours... So from about 36 hours to three to six days afterwards, because that's how long they stay on you, about three to six days, then what's happening is that they're ingesting your blood, but they're also backwashing, which is basically the best way to call it, into your bloodstream. And that's where the bacteria, viruses, and protozoa can come in there. And then um, within a few days afterwards, you may start to feel a little bit weak. You may feel like you have flu. If you have um, the, the Lyme disease, Borrelia, uh, you may end up with what sort of looks like a, um, a bullseye rash, um, you know, all of these things. So you've really, really got to be, in, you know, careful on making sure that you're doing those tick checks. And of course, it will happen with your pets as well. So your dogs definitely need to also be checked. Yeah. Different types of ticks in different parts of the country? Yeah. So essentially what we're talking about with Lyme disease, which probably everyone's heard about, is the black-legged or deer tick. There are other ticks that are out there, and some of them will have different types of uh, pathogens. So if you're listening right now from British Columbia, Lyme disease, Borrelia, not so much a problem, but you're probably looking at Babesia, which is a liver disease, and it's really not something you want. So again, you may not have the Lyme disease problem, but you definitely don't want babesiosis. And again, you start to feel that unwell sort of flu conditions, but then you may end up having a little bit of jaundice, and that's when you really need to be going to see a doctor. Yeah, and it's interesting the way you put it, uh, if you uh, if, if you uh, have raccoons. I mean, raccoons now bring yeah. the tick to you, yep. uh, right? We used to have to go out to find the ticks. We had to go to the woods and in the fields. But now we oh, have yeah. the animals because we're moving further and further, closer and closer, and in, uh, in, intruding on, on wildlife territory. So the raccoons bring the ticks to us. Oh, I, exactly. And one of the big things that was a story maybe about five years ago. Now, I'm going to be a little bit Toronto-centric, and I apologize to the rest of Canada, but there's a really nice area of Greenbelt in the city, and everyone thought that that was safe. Well, apparently it's not, and the ticks are actually thriving in that area. So the reality is that if you have green space in any of your urban areas and you know that there is urban wildlife that's there, if you happen to be in the zone where um, ticks are surviving, which is, by the way, growing about 40 to 50 kilometers northwards every single year, then you're probably going to want to make sure that you're wearing the long clothing, white clothing, so that you can see them when they're moving on you, or make sure that you're always doing a tick check after you've been outside. Yeah, so, wow. Um, I'm, I'm, now, I'm now looking forward to the... 10 or 15 days in a row in the wintertime when it's really cold. <laughs> you know, it, it's funny. Whenever oh, I talk man. to parents about children getting yeah. infections and stuff yeah. like that, all of a sudden they're no longer my friends. Now weathermen are like, oh, I hate you, because now you're wanting people to look for really yeah. cold weather. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> now, Jason, when we were talking about ticks, the way to deal with them, if you have one and it's infected you, is antibiotics. But at the other end of the scale, the bugs, the germs are increasing their ability to battle and overcome antibiotics. And the past president or head of the English health, public health care system uh, called it an apocalypse waiting to happen. We talked about it a bit last time you were on the show. Mm -hmm. Had a lot of response to that. Can you just pick up? I don't know where we left off. It's just, talk to us about that, please. 
Yeah, well, where we left off essentially was we're trying to find novel ways to be able to fight antibiotic-resistant bacteria. And, I mean, we're looking at it from a bunch of different angles. We're looking at disinfections so that we can clear surfaces and water and food so that you don't have to worry about them. Uh, we're looking at new types of medication. And in one particular case, it may not even be an antibiotic. It might actually be a virus called a bacteriophage. Uh, believe it or not, we are starting to see these little viruses um, being used more often to be able to help people survive these antibiotic-resistant infections. But I'll be honest with you, the best thing that we're going to be able to do is just make sure people don't get infected. <laughs> if you're not infected, you don't have to worry about it. Yeah, so, so the overuse of antibiotics is really what has given the bugs the, the upper hand in, in many cases. Yeah, and you see, here's the big problem, right? Back in 2012, when we were sort of first talking about this, there was the opportunity for us to start reducing the use of antibiotics so that we didn't have too much of a problem. We had only seen back then only one particular strain of a bacterium that was resistant to all antibiotics. The problem is... We're 11 years later, we have quite a number of different bacteria that are resistant to all antibiotics. And the problem is, is that there's no one location where this is happening. This is happening all over the world. So if you get a bacterial infection, whether it be a pneumonia, a urinary tract is, uh, infection, um, or even just something like you scraped your arm and all of a sudden it's starting to get a little bit infected, the antibiotic that they give you may not work. And now we're having these what we call algorithms to determine whether or not a person will be sense, be able to use one particular antibiotic or if we have to use numerous antibiotics to be able to make this happen. We've, re, we've essentially gone past that point where we can just have to reduce our use. We now have to mitigate the fact that we have these pan-resistant strains. Yeah, and these, uh, these bacteria that we for decades now have been able to handle quite easily with antibiotics – Oh, yeah. are, are going to uh, cause a resurgence of, well, fatalities from problems that were easily resolved. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and we're seeing this. Um, I, I still remember that um, I, I'd heard about this, I think it was in the United States last year. Um, a woman just had a simple urinary tract infection, and unfortunately, they just couldn't treat it. I mean, you're going to hear lots more of these stories. And the thing is that, I'm sure that there's a number of people who are listening to the show right now who have actually had to go for a second or a third round yeah. of antibiotics yeah. to get rid of an ammonia yeah. because that's just more and more common now. Yeah. So it, and it's happening even more commonly in Canada, even though, you know, at one time it was more the low and middle income countries that were suffering it. Now it's all over the world. So is the only cure then for this issue time and the opportunity for science to develop uh, other approaches to deal with bacteria or strength to get a super antibiotic strain going? Um, or what's, what's the solution here? Well, the, the, the solution really is to come up with a way of killing the bug without allowing it the opportunity to evolve to create some kind of, resist, some kind of resistance. Um, you know, we as humans evolve about once every 20 years. That, that's essentially, you know, you, you, you grow up, you have children, that's sort of one step, one generation. Um, bacteria can do it every 20 minutes. <laughs> every so, 20 minutes? Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, there's a strain called E. coli I used to work with in the laboratory, and we could train it probably within a day to resist any kind of antibiotic Holy that we wanted smokes. it to. What about artificial intelligence? How, how, how is that going to help us? You know, I always get such a kick out of that because at the end of the day, we think artificial intelligence is going to help us, but we can come up with as many ideas as we want using artificial intelligence on a computer screen. You still have to make it. Because as far as I know, looking at a computer screen is not going to get rid of your bacterial infection in your lungs. Yeah. Are you scared? I mean, you you, you always deal deal with these challenging issues, and you know what's going on in the microbiology world. Do you you live in a—you can't be a, a guy who's fearful. It's it's not about being fearful. And uh, honestly, Roy, and I said this the last time, I, I had an antibiotic-resistant infection in 1996. So, like, I've known about it for a very long time. Yeah. Um, but the thing is, I'm careful, right? And, and I think right. that's really what it comes down to is you want to try and be careful so that you don't run into a situation where you are at risk of having an infection, okay. particularly a bacterial infection. And I know that a lot of people are going to be like humming and hawing because of the precautionary measures we took over the last three years because of a virus. And I have 10 seconds, Jason. Well, be able to just be careful. As you know, the premiers are meeting in Winnipeg this week. Always important to have the premiers meeting. Sometimes they actually do something. Quite often it's a flurry of news releases followed by nothing. Or almost nothing. The Canadian Medical Association will have a major role to play. And I really believe Canada's doctors, and particularly in the last few years, two, three years, have taken such a proactive and positive approach to correcting health care. I'm very impressed with what the doctors are, are calling for. They're looking for uh, governments to work toward eliminating hospital emergency department closures within three years adding 7,500 net new family physicians across the country over five years and 15,000 over 10 years. It's a lot more the doctors want to talk to the premiers about. And we're delighted to speak uh, for the first time with Dr. Kathleen Ross. Dr. Ross is the president-elect of the Canadian Medical Association. Dr. Ross, thank you for joining us and congratulations on your, on your, uh, elect- on your election. Thank you very much, and it's a pleasure to be here. Um, I'm going to ask you about your personal as a family doctor. Well, let me do this right now. We have about 6 million Canadians without a family doctor, which is a massive number. So these Canadians, if they are in trouble, they'll go to a walk-in clinic or they'll go to an emergency room. We now have emergency rooms in smaller communities closing in Canada on weekends because they just don't have the staffing. Would you give us your perspective on the family physician issue and then what is it, what's the message that you and the Canadian Medical Association are going to bring the premiers particularly on the issue of family doctors? Well, first I'd start out of the gate saying that across the country, governments are demonstrating a commitment to health care in a way that we haven't seen for a long time. Um, and understanding uh, that all people need a trusted primary care giver to, to return to for those chronic conditions, mental health, maternal and child care and other basic needs is, uh, is, is definitely top of mind. So as a family physician who's done comprehensive care for the last three decades, I definitely do see things eroding uh, and the expectations on family physicians are at an all-time high from you know, increasingly complex and aging population, uh, you know, those silos of care that we always speak about, uh, inadequate or inefficient technological solutions, how we manage our data and 
forms and, and then really the moral injury that we experience getting patients the care that they need in a timely fashion. All of these things are, are aligning now and are definitely reflected in what we're calling for the governments to address as they, uh, as they meet this week. It's a difficult job, very difficult job to be a family doctor. I've talked to a number of doctors recently and they tell me they spend more time on satisfying bureaucratic requirements like filling out forms than they actually spend treating patients, which just seems so wrong. Well, certainly as an early adopter of electronic medical <laughs> solutions in my own practice, we, we thought this was going to solve our challenges, but it, has, uh, it hasn't really done that. Uh, but the, I mean, administrative burden is just so many things. There's, there's a certain amount of administration that needs to go into charting and managing patient records, whether in hospital or in community. But really targeting you know, redundancies, looking at lab test results more than once is a common one that I hear. Uh, low value tasks, uh, also a big challenge. But uh, the administrative work is there, but it's more the burden that we feel uh, at, at times, that exhaustion, dread, frustration, wanting to spend more time with patients and yet having to uh, have to spend it on the paperwork and, and other management techniques. It has, a, it has a toll for sure. Yeah, and I spoke with one of your predecessors a few years ago who pointed out that uh, doctors are retiring more quickly than the general population, and we just cannot uh, afford that. Um, let's talk about, if you will, please share with us the the, the view that you're going to bring to the to the uh, premiers on uh, uh, a pan-Canadian health workforce planning, so scaling up team-based primary care, which I think is really significantly positive if we, if, we, if we can do it in this country. And because we're, we're massively large, it sounds like it's really manageable. It is more manageable in a country the size of Switzerland, but the size of Canada becomes a bit of a geographical and sometimes a weather issue. But uh, talk to us about that, please. And also, I know this is extremely important to the doctors in this country, the CMA, expanding the mobility of health professionals. That's something that has been bureaucratically um, not possible or not necessarily possible. How do you, how do you, how do you see that happening? So we're already starting to see a regional licensure in uh, in the Atlantic provinces to allow mobility in, uh, between those provinces for trained physicians. We have to recognize that what, what roles or what gaps are we trying to fill? And realistically, we're looking at sustainability uh, in many areas. So to have uh, opportunities for locum physicians to come into rural or remote communities, whether that's to replace uh, folks that are going on holiday, maternity leave, educational leave, that actually improves sustainability of resources in those rural communities. But there are also specialty areas where uh, moving from one province to another province that may not have those specialty services in their region becomes critically important. We're just trying to encourage mobility for physicians the same way that you would if you had a driver's license in one province crossing over to another province. Uh, but the, uh, the opportunity to, to fill gaps and meet needs in an, in an urgent way for emergencies, but in a more longitudinal way to improve sustainability in these areas is going to be critically important. You're right. We have a we have a big gap of uh, of 6.5 we think million uh, patients unattached uh, to primary care at the moment, and and as our current family physicians, which by the way have an average age of 51 years, uh, retire or decrease their workload as we head into retirement. Uh, looking to care for their own children or elders, or reducing their office hours to meet rising needs, working in you know an emergency department or hospitalist work or or carry uh, carry extra burden in obstetrics care. These are these are challenges that are that are rapidly progressing towards us, and we need to be open and transparent in naming them and 
tracking them and, and putting in places metrics that we can know things are improving. Dr. Ross, let me, um, let me ask you then about uh, uh, emergency department closures. Can we, uh, can we just address that? And, and how, I know that they're closing in, in smaller communities. We said that, but they're overcrowded and there's a lot of wait time and some people are really struggling with their health while they're waiting to be seen at, a, at an emergency room. Some of that has to do with the uh, six and a half million Canadians who have no family doctor. But you have expectations or you have a, you have a plan for the premiers to adopt as far as this is concerned. Tell us about that. So I think our goal is really to have clearly shareable and understandable data about our healthcare services and indices, you know, measurements that we can say, this is what we're looking for from a population. And I think yeah, these metrics that we've proposed are a way of starting to track where are the gaps and setting that long horizon. We need that three-year, five-year, 10-year horizon. Where are we going and how are we going to get there? Emergency departments are, are likely going to be in crisis for the foreseeable future because of our challenges with our with our number of humans, you know, our staff that's working there, not just physicians and nurses, but other care providers as well. Uh, and it's very important that we understand we want to move forward. So having a good goal in mind is the first step. You mentioned primary care. Absolutely. A lack of access to primary care is a problem. Many people do wind up in the emergency department for lack of those basic health services, but people wind up in the emergency department because of delayed diagnoses as well. And that can relate to difficulty accessing things like uh, ultrasound, CT scan, MRI. It can, uh, it can really disrupt the trajectory of a patient's care that they might otherwise receive in the community. So, so let's talk a bit about uh, the delivery of care. One of the objectives of the Canadian Medical Association, I'm just reading from your news release here, increasing the percentage of priority procedures delivered within medically acceptable wait time benchmarks to 80% within five years and 90% within 10 years. For some people, it's going to sound like a long time, 10 years, but this ship moves slowly and it's, if you'll pardon me, it's uh, top heavy with bureaucracy. But um, let's talk about the availability of what you just talked about, the procedures, the diagnostic procedures. You know, you need an MRI. Well, you can have one in three years. Or you need to see the specialist. Well, you can see the specialist in two years. Or you need this procedure done in order so we can define and determine what's going on with you. Well, we don't have any, anybody right now. Are you willing to travel 50 miles and be seen at 11 o'clock at night? These are all issues that need hurdles. Issues, hurdles that need to be addressed. Talk to us about that. The uh, just making the priority procedures deliverable within the accepted wait time benchmarks. Yeah, I think that's very important, actually. But again, if we have those goals set where we're headed uh, and we're not able to meet those goals, so tracking the metrics and things we're measuring is really, really important. And then understanding the challenge. But I also think that engaging Canadians is going to be super important. And exactly what you said, most of the Canadians now are are aware that the healthcare system we've really been proud of for a long time does need to modernize uh, and we need to be sharing and engaging with our elected officials about our experiences with healthcare and any gaps that they've uh, that they've experienced, and that's to really help inform that cyclical learning process. But we cannot know that changes that we make today, investments that we make today, are leading to tangible changes unless we have some way to measure and track where we are on our trajectory towards the goals. Mm-hmm. 
Now, it's one thing for me to say to you, I heard, and I heard recently, as recently as a couple of months ago from uh, Dr. Lafontaine, about hundreds of thousands of surgeries here, uh, your outgoing president of the CMA, uh, that hundreds of thousands of surgeries have been postponed because of uh, backlogs. I've talked to patients who've said they've suddenly been made a received notification that there's no surgery. The surgeries that were planned are not going to be carried out. We know there are diagnosed cancer patients who are not getting any treatment, any treatment at the specialist level because, well, they just have to wait. The wait, the lineup is overwhelming. These are issues that, these are real-time today issues that have to be addressed. And the premiers have the responsibility to work with you. I mean, nobody understands the situation better than Canada's doctors and nurses who are on the front lines of the, and paramedics who are on the front lines. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree with you more. And, uh, and I think we actually do need to make sure that we're moving in the right direction. I think we're all pulling in the same direction now and uh, opening the dialogue about what citizens expect from their healthcare system, what we're able to reasonably provide and what timeline and measuring that. Uh, will allow us to say, okay, we need these changes, it's better. But at the core of the services that we provide is that human resource factor. Uh, and, you know, it's impossible to increase our number of surgeries that we do unless we actually have enough nurses to be in the operating room, enough doctors to, mm-hmm. to actually operate on you. And it, the uh, the physical space is part of it, but it's that human uh, challenge that we're facing right now. There's no question this has been evolving for a while and, and it's not going to it's not going to be solved overnight, but we need to have that trajectory of where we're headed. Uh, and I don't think we've had that to date. So that's where we're headed. Dr. Ross, you're a family physician in British Columbia. So what is the what is the greatest concern, the greatest frustration, the greatest challenge that you face in your position as a family doctor who also does uh, other act, uh, is involved in other activities. Uh, um, that's not the right word. Specialties like cardiac care. What is the what is the most frustra- frustrating issue that you face personally? I th- I think my twenty four hours in my day is not enough. I need like thirty hours in a day. That would be really helpful. Uh, honestly, the need is just great. It, there's there's more need in our in our patients and their caregivers than what we are able to to provide right now. Allowing you know the move towards team-based care to free up time from from my type of job, my family physician job, to do on direct patient care the things that I need to do, and allow others in that team to take on work uh, that could be done by others. Okay, we have thirty seconds. Do you find patients are getting frustrated? I think patients have been frustrated for a long time, but providing them with a, a long end game of where we're headed and how we're going to measure our our progress towards these goals will help to lessen that frustration. Honesty, transparency in our health data and our healthcare system metrics are going to build citizen confidence. And, and I think we can modernize our system. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.